Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. From Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord who is good, whose steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is my strength and my might. God has become my salvation. There are glad songs of victory in the tents of the righteous. The hand of the Lord is exalted. The hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And hear now the second reading from the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two figures in dazzling clothes stood before them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the figures said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again? Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to the men an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Where does Easter come from? Seems an odd question maybe, but I think it's a fair one. Easter is one of the slipperiest pieces of our religious life. The actual word Easter is never mentioned in the pages of the Bible. And nobody quite knows where the word even comes from. It might be derived from the name of a North European pagan goddess of spring, which if that's true, makes things both more interesting and more complicated. Easter dances all over the calendar, balanced somewhere between the spring equinox and the full moon. It floats on tides of time and light. 
St. Augustine tells us that in the year 387, for instance, Easter came on three different dates around the Mediterranean basin. And even now, if you ask the Greek and Russian Orthodox churches, they'll tell you that we're a week early. And then we'll tell them next Sunday as they celebrate that we've been there already. In a way, though, this slipperiness makes sense. Because if you read the Gospels looking for it, you'll find that the first Easter came for different people at widely different times. It met those three broken-hearted women at the tomb in the half-light somewhere between the end of one day and the beginning of the next. According to the Gospel of John's version of things, Easter found Mary Magdalene somewhat later in the garden as she stood weeping, and only when she heard a familiar voice speak her name. It came belatedly for some of the men in Jesus's inner circle, and only when they were willing to get up and go see for themselves. It happened for others at an inn in the village of Emmaus by the last light of that full day. And then a week or so later for Thomas, when he finally had his doubts expunged. And then much later for Paul on his way to Damascus. Easter takes its own time. Easter makes time its own. But to the odd question, where does Easter come from? I want to try out an odd answer. It comes from behind us. The three women who made their way to the tomb that morning were already running a little behind. Since Jesus had been killed on a Friday and his body hastily deposited in a borrowed tomb by the last light of that day, respect for the religious practice of keeping Sabbath beginning at sundown had delayed their errand of tenderness by a day. So they set out early as soon as the Sabbath was passed to perform the gentle, somber work that needed to be done inside the tomb. The text actually says it was something like deep dawn that they made their way through in that little crack of time between Saturday and Sunday, with their mind's eyes full of the hard and very real things that they knew they would see and touch and smell that would fill the morning ahead of them. The twin shocks of finding that heavy stone that sealed the tomb already rolled aside. And then of the body not being in the place on the floor inside where they'd left it were disorienting enough. And then the sudden arrival of two dazzling strangers out of nowhere must have planted in their souls the defining question of every Easter. What is going on here? but the dazzling figures speak words that point in an unexpected direction. Remember how he said to you while he was in Galilee that this is just how it would be? Remember what he told you about the way his message would be received, about the danger, the certainty of arrest, and even of execution, the sense of catastrophe, and remember how he said that it would not end there, not end at all, actually, but burst out in a way that even the combined authority of the empire and the Sanhedrin would not be able to bury. Then they remembered, says the text, 
And that's where Easter comes from. It comes from behind us. When we remember what we've heard, what we knew but had forgotten, and finally recognized for the truth that it was, though we could hardly have seen or grasped or understood it at the time. Then they remembered what he'd said, what he'd promised, what he'd done. And that's when they began to see how the pieces of the present fit together, began to start imagining what the future might look like. That's when they knew they were at the beginning, not at the end. What they saw at the tomb made no sense until they stirred it with remembrance until they looked behind them. It just looked like death, followed by theft, maybe, or just by meaningless, inscrutable emptiness of the kind we all know quite a bit about. Until you remember, and as long as you're only looking straight ahead of you at the signs of death that are everywhere, it all sounds like an idle tale. As Luke tells us, it did sound to the men to whom the women brought their astonished testimony. Let's take a closer look at those men. They fled from the place of execution, and probably we can't blame them, given the danger they, they must have felt once the rulers started condemning people to die just because the crowd encouraged them to go right ahead. The text doesn't tell us this, but maybe we can look at the men generously and assume that they were heartbroken, pinned in an unthinkable present by the death of their friend and hero, and then bereft of a future in the collapsed movement for which they'd left everything. Who could blame them for being stuck in a question that felt impossible and huge and horrible? What do we do now? That's when the women arrive, breathless with their counterintuitive message. Remember, that's what we do now. Remember what he said? Remember how he told us that it would be bad, that it would seem over, but that it would not be over? But how do you get your eyes to see the living when all you think you can see is the dead? You can't recognize until you remember. Luke, who's telling this story, does a remarkable thing at precisely this moment. Just as the women are speaking to the death-fixated men, Luke gives the women names. Now, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. It was from their memory that the church salvaged the hindsight that it needed to understand what had happened. It was the testimony of very particular people. Alas, the kinds of people whom history has a terrible tendency to forget. And let's not miss the thundering echo of how this bit of history repeats itself every time men choose not to credit the report of what women have seen and know is true. It was the testimony of the women that salvaged the meaning of that morning. We saw it. We remember, we went to the place of death and he is not there. We remember and we're telling you it's not over, it's just beginning. There is no recognition without remembering. And remembering is always done in the memories of very particular people. 
The oxygen it breathes is the stories of particular witnesses, people who always have names, even if we've forgotten them. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and that, that other Mary, you know, the one who's the mother of James. Particular people who say, I remember, and now I see it for what it is. And if you remember, you'll see it too. You'll see through all the signs and statistics of death everywhere. See right through to the life that you remember, the life that continues. Christians do a lot of talking about the life that continues after death. On Easter, the message is that death does not have the final say, that the life in Jesus was stronger than all the death that the empire and the powers could scrape together, and that the bottom line on the meaning of that day of days is that there is hope after all, that death is not the last thing, that love prevails, that justice is possible, that faith is rewarded. But we live in a world where there's death all around us. And none of that confident talk makes complete sense in the present until you remember what he said back there in Galilee, back there at the beginning of Lent, back there at the beginning of your Christian journey when you first heard it. Blessed are you who are the poor in spirit, he said. Remember? Blessed and beloved of God are you, the ones who grieve, the ones who show mercy, even when you have every reason to feel only bitterness. Blessed are you who have been hungry for food and for right relationship. Beloved of God are those among you who have given your heart and your soul to making peace. You shall be alive with God, and God shall be alive with you. You shall obtain the same mercy that you have wielded in this world, and you shall be known as God's own beloved children. Remember how he said to you while he was still in Galilee that you were beloved of God. Even you, who have a hard time believing this could be true when you see all the death around you everywhere, even you have been found, even you have been inscribed in the heart of God, and even whatever combination of belief and unbelief you have will be enough to get you up off your mat and get you walking back out into the world, and it'll fill you with the life of Jesus because Jesus' life doesn't stay entombed. Jesus' life isn't sealed underground somewhere. Jesus' life walks around looking like justice and talking like love and smelling like hope and feeling like welcome and tasting like, like bread and wine. And while you're remembering, remember one other thing, too. Remember that the truth that makes all the pieces of Jesus' life fit together, even when it looks like there's only death everywhere you look, remember that the truest truth of it will only get slippery the way it loves to do and start moving around in time the way we so need it to if there's someone to tell the story. Easter rides on the testimony of the ones who remember, the ones who are brave enough and full enough of love and light to tell what they remember. Oh, 
we still have our tender and somber errands to attend to in this hard time. But into the midst of them, Easter has come riding in again on its tide of light and time, riding on the testimony of Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, who remembered and then saw that his love wasn't gone just because they had ruined his body, saw that he wasn't finished breathing just because his mortal lungs had finished their usefulness. Without their testimony, well, where would we be? But thanks be to God, we are here. And why are we here? There will come a time, there will, when someone is going to need you to remember what he said while he was in Galilee. You know, blessed are you, beloved of God are you. You are found, take up your mat and walk. And then, on that day, Easter will ride in again on the testimony of Peggy and Holly and Aidan and Chloe and Ernie and Daniel and Lechia and Eldon and Katie and Sebastian and Theodore and Jack and Evan and Kristen and Kayla and Annie and Brian and Chris. Because without you, without what you remember, beloved are you, blessed are you. Without you, well, where would we be? Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen. And friends, let us now approach our God in prayer. Let us pray together as the people. We bring our prayers to you through Christ, O God, who is never far, who is always close to us, who is risen from the dead, and who lives and reigns now forever and prays for us in heaven. God of pilgrimages, we thank you for walking with us down the challenging paths and confounding times. Thank you for being present with us even when we forget to touch base with you. Thank you for your, the witness that we have to your faithfulness and love for generation after generation. We thank you, great God, for being with Sarah and Abraham as they traveled in places they did not choose, in lands foreign to them and took up challenges they did not design. We thank you, God, for Shipra and Puah, midwives to the Hebrews, who risked their lives to make sure that new life could thrive, who let their commitment to you and to the community take priority in their lives. We thank you, God, too, for Naomi and for Ruth, for their witness as a family, for their tireless devotion, for their return to Bethlehem, even after the death of loved ones, and for their courage to stay steadfast with one another and with you. We give you thanks for the abundant harvest that was found where once there was just famine and despair. We thank you too, God, for the great gift of Mary, who anointed Jesus with costly perfume, reminding us that caring for the body of Christ is primary for us all. We thank you, God, for healthcare workers, for nurses and respiratory technicians, for first responders, for physicians. We thank you for their devotion and courage, their tenderness and skill, for the steady presence in the face of 
great and real threat and uncertainty. For them, O oh God of compassion, we give you thanks. We thank you, O oh God, now for leaders in our midst, people who have shown courage, showed us the way, prophets and preachers, pastors and teachers, shepherds, still the minds and hearts of our state and local and national leaders, so they may provide the structure, the organization, and the foresight to offer care to a needy land. Journey with us, O oh God, in the tumult. Be with us in the twists and turns of the coronavirus and lead us to a place centered on your great love. Help us, God, to put our promise and trust in you for your life, your resurrection conquers all. Before long, O oh God, we'll be back to hugs and handshakes. We'll return to concerts and movies, to protests and elections. Our travels and adventures will return, gatherings and worship. We will create a new normal, but for now, we have to step back in order to care for each other. The time is now and the threat is real. We must act in powerful and clever ways to flatten the curve, to, cre to create distance, and to stop the viral spread of disease and fear and distrust. As we confront this global crisis, we also recognize a wonderful opportunity to reset. We have the chance now to consider all the right actions that would create a just, fair, and equitable land and world. Bring us to that place, O oh God, and let us all take now a good and deep breath. Let us hunker down again and stop for a few precious moments that we may all together be in this sudden strangeness as the people of God together in this place. And let us keep still as we remember this sudden moment of strangeness and we relish your presence. And then we open ourselves to the vast and creative energies of you, O oh God. You who defeated death and evil and rose from the dead and now leads us on in a journey toward hope and healing. The God who taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us now our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and forever. Amen and amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.